You guys can turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Nice thing about a sermon on government and politics is that I will not have to try hard to keep you awake. <laughs> Everybody's pretty worked up over this subject right now with the big vote coming on Tuesday. And so it's exciting to get to talk about this subject this morning because I know that it's one that, that we're thinking about a lot. Right now, many of you are ready to debate this subject right now. Others of you just want to stick your head in the sand, and some of you are ready to move to Canada. So everyone is thinking about government and politics right now. Now, as I have grown up over the last 39 years, I've seen that no matter what election you're talking about, the subject of politics always raises emotions in people. My earliest political memory, I was eight years old, it was 1984, and Ronald Reagan beat Walter Mondale in a landslide. And and what I remember about that election is not so much the details. I didn't really understand what was going on in our country. What I remember is the emotion. Every time an adult would be asked about politics, they would be very passionate about it, very excited about their candidate, very frustrated with everyone supporting the other candidate. I just thought of grown-ups in politics as something that raises a lot of emotion. And, And I've seen that that's true no matter where you go, no matter what country you visit. In 2000, I went to Central Asia to one of the former Soviet republics, and I was there for seven weeks, and there was no subject that would raise more emotion in people than politics. If you talk to a Central Asian, they were excited about it because they had finally gotten their country back from the Russians who had controlled it since World War II. So they were optimistically excited. If you talk to a Russian, they were depressed. They were angry. They would reach for another bottle of vodka every time the subject of politics came up. It always raises emotions, whoever you're talking to. I saw that that was true when I visited Israel in 95 and Italy in 2005 and Turkey last year. The subject of politics always raises strong emotions in people. That's always been true, even all the way back in Solomon's day. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to talk a good bit about government and politics because it's always a subject of interest that drives a lot of emotions in people. But what Solomon is going to say to us about government in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning is largely negative. I'll warn you about that ahead of time. Most of it is bad news. What Solomon is going to do in this book is he's going to reveal for us the three failures that plague every form of government throughout all of human history. So three problems that are endemic of of all governments, whether you're talking about a dictatorship or a monarchy or a socialist state or even a democracy, these same three problems, same three failures plague every government that has ever existed. And again, the, the purpose of Ecclesiastes, the reason why Solomon is going to do this and be so negative on government is because government is our next idol that the book is going to tackle. And Ecclesiastes as a book was given to you to crush your idols so that you're left with nothing in life to cling to but God alone. So government is an idol. What do we mean by idol? Just to review, it's not a little statue of wood or stone. An idol is any person or thing other than God that you cling to for satisfaction and security in your life. And by that definition, government is an idol for many, many, many people in our country. 
You know that because look at the level of emotion and anger going on right now. You get emotional and angry about a thing if you believe that thing determines your satisfaction and security in life. Then you care about it deeply because you're clinging to it. So you either want your candidate to be elected or you fear the other candidate being elected. The amount of emotion stirring over the subject of government shows you how much you are clinging to it as an idol in your life to provide the satisfaction and security that you crave for yourself and your family. So if you are worked up over this election cycle in our country, Solomon has some words of wisdom for you this morning that are going to be hard to hear but crucial to understand. He wants you to understand that no matter who wins this coming election, no government on earth will ever provide the satisfaction and security you crave. Because all governments, including our own government, are plagued by three problems. Number one, all governments on earth are infiltrated by sin. Every single government, including our own, is infiltrated at the highest levels by sin. Look with me, chapter 8. Actually, let's start with Proverbs. Let's start with the, with the good. Here's what God intends for human governments. Proverbs 20, verse 26. A wise king winnows out the wicked. He drives the threshing wheel over them. God intends for human governments to restrain sin. That's what God wants, that that good governments would restrain and eliminate sin from whatever country you're talking about. But that's, that's not what happens. No government has ever been successful at eliminating sin. Why? Look with me now. Chapter 8, verse 11. It says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. What Solomon is telling us is there's a problem that plagues all governments. They fail to exercise justice upon sin and evil quickly. They, they do not perfectly punish evil. And as a result, people are inspired to do more evil things, more sinful things. But why is it? Why is it that governments do not punish sin quickly? Why do they not promote righteousness as they should? Well, the answer is in chapter 7, verse 20. Here it is. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So why don't governments perfectly punish sin? Because governments are made up of people and all people are sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no exception to that all. It goes all the way up, all the way from the voters to the president, to kings, to monarchs. All are sinners. So at the highest levels of government, All people are corrupted by sin. Now that's really important for us to understand because when we tend to think about the problem with our country, we tend to blame those people over there. Other people, maybe it's the supporters of the other candidate or people from the other party. If you're a Republican, the problem is the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, the problem is Republicans. No, where is the problem? Right here, in me and in you. The problem with America is the sin in your heart. The problem with America is that all Americans, from voters to the president, are corrupted by sin. We are sinners. 
We desire in our heart of hearts to do that which is evil. So the real enemy that America faces is not some existential threat out there. It's the enemy right here in our hearts. The sin that corrupts all of us. All governments are corrupted by sin and will always be corrupted by sin until a sinless ruler comes. And that's why we put our hope in the return of Jesus. Because he's the only possible government ruler who can rule without sin. He's the only person who's ever lived without sin. And so until he returns, we know that all governments will be infiltrated by sin. Our only hope is for Jesus to come back and take over. That's when things will be fixed. That's when government will finally do what God intends it to do. And so if you are counting on our government or any government to fix the problem of sin and evil in this world, you're going to be sorely disappointed because all governments are made up of people and all people are sinners. That's the first problem that plagues all forms of government. We are sinners. We are evil in our hearts and there's nothing government can do to fix that. Second problem that plagues all governments on earth. All governments are corrupted by greed. God desires for government, all governments, to promote justice and protect the vulnerable. That's his intention for government. He lays that out in Proverbs 31. He's speaking to a king here. So to a government official, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's what God intends governments to do, to protect the poor and vulnerable, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. But in a fallen world that we live in, that never happens. Governments never perfectly protect the poor and vulnerable. That's not the reality of the world we live in. Not even Old Testament Israel, the only nation that ever actually had the right to call itself God's nation, even they were corrupt. Even their kings and princes and officials succumbed to greed and took advantage of the poor and vulnerable. Look at what Solomon says, chapter 5, verse 8. Remember, this is the king of Israel speaking. So he's speaking about what is arguably the best nation that's ever existed in God's eyes. Here's what he says, chapter 5, verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Solomon's point is that power corrupts always. That's just a fact of life in this world. Whenever someone has power, they're going to be tempted to use their power for self-interest, for the purpose of self-enrichment. That's always true. And that's often going to come at the expense of others, particularly those who cannot protect themselves. They're going to be taken advantage of. I remember when I was in Central Asia back in 2000, um, there were policemen on every corner around the city. And I asked a cabbie I was with how those policemen operated because they just seemed to be sitting around and pulling over random cars. And what I found out is that to become a policeman in that country, what you had to do is bribe a government official with a ton of cash, like multiple years salary to get that position. But that was okay, because once you were a policeman, you were allowed to pull over whoever you wanted. 
So you pulled over and gave tickets and arrested people, not based on guilt, but based on whether they could bribe you or not. It was a government that was completely funded by bribery from top to bottom. Now, actually, one of the reasons I really love living in America is because America was founded by people who understood that the human heart is greedy. And so they designed a government with three equal parts so that those parts could serve as check and balances on each other to try to restrain sin. That's a wise design. That's a good design for government. The problem is, is even with a government as wise as ours, greed still runs rampant. It runs rampant. In a democracy, money buys influence. That's always how it's going to work. There's no law you can pass to change that. Money buys influence. And when politicians have to constantly be thinking about raising millions of dollars for the next election, you know that decisions are going to be influenced by money. There's no way around that. And so what I'm not saying is that every politician in Washington or in Austin is corrupt. No, I'm saying that the government as a whole, the system we live in here in America, runs on greed, just like every government on earth. Greed and self-interest are endemic to all human governments. And what we need to do for a moment, though, is pause because right now we're tempted in this moment to blame politicians. They are so greedy. They are running on self-interest. We need to stop and realize voters do the same thing. Voters do the same thing because how do most Americans decide who to vote for? Based on their wallet based on whatever politician is going to be in their self-interest, save them the most money or make them the most money. Let's be clear. Biblically speaking, that is greed. That's greed. You're voting for who should run the nation based on what is in your personal best interest. That's as greedy as any politician in Washington. That's not how God wants us to make decisions. We should be sacrificing self-interest for the good of the nation, but that's not how most people vote. And so greed affects and inflicts and corrupts our nation from the top all the way to the bottom. It's just endemic to human government, including democracies. I came across a a title of a book this week on, on Amazon. And for those of you who know grammar, you'll see the problem with the title of this book. Americans are too dumb to vote. The title of the book actually proves its thesis. You notice? Yes. Um, The problem with voters in America is not that they're too dumb. It's that we're too selfish. We make decisions based on what we want, what we think we need, rather than sacrificing self and looking out for the good of other people, especially those who can't speak for themselves, those who can't defend themselves. And the result of all of that greed and selfishness, which inflicts all of us, Solomon gives us the result. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is what he sees in all governments, no matter what form of government. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which are being done under the sun and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them and on the side of their oppressors was power but they had no one to comfort them so I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. It's a sad reality in every nation on earth because all governments and all nations are corrupted by greed the poor and the vulnerable get taken advantage of. That's the second failure of all governments, the third failure of all governments, which is actually the worst of all, as if this wasn't depressing enough. So here's the worst news of all, and really the reason for all the other problems, all governments on earth are held by the enemy. 
God tells us in Psalm chapter two, here's his intention. Here's what he wants governments and nations and kings to do. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. God's intention for all government officials and voters is that all of us would submit to God and worship God and obey God, not just with lip service, but with every part of our lives. That's God's intention, but that's never what happens. No government, not even Old Testament Israel, has ever fully obeyed God. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the God of this world? That's Satan. Satan is the God of this world. What does that mean? It means God has let Satan have authority for a time over every kingdom on earth. Satan is the God of every nation on earth, including America. And so when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, one of the things that Satan offered Jesus was all the kingdoms on earth. If you will simply bow before me. How did Jesus respond to that? He didn't say, psych, they're already mine. No. (laughs) Jesus said, you shall worship God alone because he knew that offer was legit. Until Jesus comes back in glory to rule, Satan is the God of every nation on earth. He is the one in authority over this world system. And so what that means for us is that we have to realize we here in America, we are living in enemy territory. America is not God's kingdom on earth. No, that's, that's not what America is. So this election is not about Christians getting their country back again. This country was never ours to begin with. What is your kingdom on earth? Not America, it's this, the church. The church is God's kingdom on earth today. Not any nation, not any political government. That's the church, this non-political, non-military family made up of people from all nations that transcends geopolitical boundaries. This is God's kingdom on earth. This is what we're called to build. This is what we're called to participate in. That's why there will never be an American flag on the stage on a Sunday morning at Grace Bible Church because this is not an American church. To call this thing we're doing right now American is to belittle it because America is far too small for what we're doing. This body, this family is infinitely greater and infinitely bigger than any nation on earth, including America. We're a congregation made up of people from many nations. So we have many flags beside us, but you'll notice we only have one cross above us. Because it's the cross, not a flag that unifies us. That's what gives us our identity. That's what we belong to. Our kingdom is the church, God's body, his family on earth. So we do not put our hopes in America because America, like all nations on earth, like all governments on earth, is enemy territory. It's held by the enemy. That's why it's infiltrated by sin. That's why it's corrupted by greed. 
So if you're putting your faith, your hope, your passion in government to solve your problems, to give you satisfaction and security in life, you will be sorely disappointed because no government on earth can ever do that. If you're trusting in government, you're trusting in a false idol that will disappoint you. So that's the bad news, but the fact of the matter is you've got to vote on Tuesday. So what should you do? How do we discharge our obligations as citizens of this country in a way that honors God while at the same time realizing that this country is not our hope? Well, I'm going to give you some principles. Six principles to live by when you think about being a good citizen of the nation of America. So let's talk about how we should respond, how we should live. What should we do? Well, number one, don't fear. This one's hard for me this year. Usually I don't get worked up about politics, but it's nuts right now. Things are absolutely crazy in our country and in this election. And I can get a little worried about that. I can start to feel fear. And probably all of you who are old enough to see how much our nation has changed over the last few decades, you probably feel some fear too. We get scared. What's going to happen to our freedom? What's going to happen to our economy? What's going to happen to our rights? What's going to happen to our children's future? Well, what we need to remember in the midst of when we feel this fear, when we're venting this panic, we need to remember we're scaring our children. When we give in to fear, we're scaring our children because our children are going to learn from us what it looks like to follow God. And when we give in to fear and panic, what are we telling our kids? We're telling them that God is not big enough to run America. God is not big enough to trust him with this election. God is not good enough to trust your future to him. That's not a lesson you want to teach your kids. So when you feel tempted to give in to fear, to give in to anxiety, to give in to panic, what I want you to remind yourself is this simple phrase, our God will still be on his throne no matter who wins. Will you say that with me? Our God will still be on his throne no matter who wins. You have a God who is sovereign. You have a God who runs the universe, and no election is going to change that. You realize, no matter who wins the election, God's not giving up authority. He's not stepping down and letting somebody else take the throne. No, he will always be on the throne, no matter who we elect. And so because of that, there is no reason to fear the future. Let me just be really blunt as we think about this. Because our God is sovereign and will always be on his throne, let's just make this really clear. It does not ultimately matter whether Bernie or Clinton or Trump or Cruz or Rubio or Carson are in the White House next year because your God will still be on the throne of the universe. He will still be running all things. So it's going to be okay. You don't have to panic. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be worried. Your God is big enough. So whoever wins, it's not going to surprise God, right? He knows who's going to win already. And he has crafted a plan for the universe and for your life that takes that into account. He crafted it before time began. And so no matter who wins, God's going to work for good in your life. It's going to be okay for you and your kids. God has got this. There's no reason for us to give in to fear ever. 
There's no reason to panic. There's no reason to worry. God has got this figured out. So I'd encourage you to write down this verse reference, Hebrews chapter 13. Here's the verse for you, this election cycle. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can Bernie, Hillary, Trump, Cruz, Rubio, Carson, do to me. Nothing that ultimately matters because God is your helper. He's the king and nothing will ever change that. So don't fear. Second, don't fight. We need to camp here for a moment because of what I think all of us are seeing online. So much anger and so much hostility. So let's stop for a moment and let's just reason with each other. If your God is sovereign, what does that mean? Well, that means that no matter who wins this election, your God wins. Because he's king. He gets to call the shots. No matter who wins, God wins. So if your God is going to win for sure, then that means this is not a fight you need to win. This is not a fight you're called to fight. The other party is not your enemy whom you need to defeat. Supporters of the other candidate are not your enemies who you need to defeat. Who is your enemy? Satan and the sin in you. That's what you need to be fighting, not other people. That's not how God is calling us to live our lives, fighting other people for control of the White House. There's no reason and no excuse that we should be fighting with other people over this election. We should be as loving and as gracious this year as every year and towards people of the other party and the other candidate as towards anyone else. I love the the advice that John Wesley, the guy who founded the Methodist denomination, a great preacher, he was caught up in a heated election in 1774 and here's what he wrote to the people who were following him in his journal. He encouraged them to vote for the person they judged most worthy, to speak no evil of the person they voted against, and to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. That is really good advice. My fear is that people's spirits are going to be sharpened against others because of this election. There's no call for that. This is not a fight God has called you to win. He wins, period. You can take that to the bank. So what God is expecting of us, calling of us, is that we would treat everyone with love and grace and mercy, no matter who they support. So don't fear and don't fight. Third, do vote. You really should go vote because that's your responsibility as a citizen of the U.S. God wants you to be a good citizen of whatever nation you live in. And so he's calling you to vote. He expects you to vote. So who should you vote for? Well, God wants you to vote for a candidate who is both wise and good. Let's look at a few verses. Let's talk about wisdom first. Look with me at chapter four. Chapter four, verse 13. It says, a a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. It's important to vote for someone who is wise, meaning they're, they're humble and teachable. They can learn from others. They can work well with other people. That's a key part of wisdom. Wisdom means they have tact. They can communicate well with others. They can solve problems wisely by bringing many people to the table to work together. That's wisdom. 
God wants you to vote for someone who is wise, who can work well with other people to solve problems. Second, he wants you to vote for someone who is good. Look with me, turn to chapter 10 real quick. Chapter 10, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Feast in the morning means they get drunk in the morning. They're wanting to to serve themselves. They're prideful. They're selfish. Better is verse 17. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. He has a noble spirit, an honorable person, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. The point is that you need to vote for someone who is selfless, who puts other people's interests above their own, who is humble, who will seek to, to serve others even at great personal cost. In other words, what Solomon is trying to help you understand is that in any election, character matters as much as policy. You need to vote for a person who is wise and good, no matter what party they're, they're part of. Do you realize God's not a Republican or a Democrat? He could care less about party affiliation. What he wants you to do is vote for a leader who is both wise and good, even if that means you are voting against your self-interest. You don't go vote for the candidate who's best for your pocketbook. That's not how you make a godly decision. You vote for the candidate who is the most righteous and the most wise, no matter what it means for you personally. That's what God expects of you, not to be greedy and self-interested, but to seek out candidates who are wise and good for the nation as a whole. So vote for people who are wise and good, and while you're at it, please encourage wise and good people to run for office. I really think part of the reason that we're in this mess that we're in right now is because we haven't encouraged enough good and wise people to run. So let's encourage, when you see somebody who's good and wise and has a heart for public service, encourage them to run for office because politics can be a noble calling if you fight the sin and self-interest in your heart. Now, let's be honest. If you fight the sin and self-interest in your heart, you may not win a lot of elections, but who really cares? Because God wins. That's all that ultimately matters. But better to be a losing politician than a corrupt one. So... Let's encourage good and wise people to run for office and let's vote for people like that. Okay, so third point, vote for people who are wise and good. Fourth, pray for whoever wins. No matter who wins this election, pray for them on a regular basis. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Doesn't matter whether that person's a Christian or not. Doesn't matter what party they're part of, you pray for them. If they're not a believer, you're praying for their salvation. If they are a believer, you're praying that they would walk in wisdom and Christ-like love. No matter whether they're a Christian or not, you're praying for their protection, that God would watch over them. You pray for people. I think that we as a people would, would really be a light if we spent more time praying for those candidates we do not like than bad-mouthing them on Facebook. We could go a long ways towards glorifying God if we'll take that anger and frustration and spend it in prayer instead of venting it. So pray for whoever wins. Fifth, obey whoever wins. Look at chapter eight. Chapter eight, verse two. It says, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God, meaning he's in office ultimately because God put him there. 
Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. Solomon is saying that everyone who is in authority, in government, whether they were elected there or born into it in a monarchy, they're ultimately there out of God's sovereign authority. He's the one who has allowed them to take office. As a result, since they carry God's authority, it is wise to obey them. Life in general works better when you obey than when you disobey. So you should obey the government in all situations. Now, there is one exception. When the government tells you to do something that goes against God, there's a hierarchy to obedience. God comes first, always. So if the government tells you to do something that violates your conscience before God, that's the only reason you disobey. And the good news is here in America, most of the time, at least for now, we're not going to be called to choose between obeying God or the government. Now, there, there are a few cases, and they make a lot of headlines, the infamous should you bake a cake for a gay wedding case. There's only a few of those. It's not going to affect most of us. If you really want to weigh into that, there's a guy named Russell Moore. You can look him up online. He's written some great articles and done some great podcasts about all the legal issues behind that and the religious issues, because there's actually Christians on both sides of the decision. Some say you should bake the cake to be a witness. Some say you shouldn't. Really complicated issues. So you can go study that. But realize that's going to affect hardly any of us. Here in America, for most of us, most days of our lives, we're going to need to obey the government because it's not going to be in conflict with God's law. That means you obey in every way. And because it's the middle of the spring, I got to remind you, that includes paying your taxes. It does. There's no way around that. We don't like to do it, but we must because Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Your tax money belongs to the government and God takes it seriously. God takes it seriously. You need to pay all that you owe. Do not lie, do not cheat, do not swindle, pay it all. Okay, so you gotta obey whoever wins. Sixth and finally and by far the most important thing I will say all morning, keep the gospel first. Keep the gospel first. What we've been realizing this morning as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, I'm probably not for the first time. Most of you probably already knew this. No matter what government you are under, it will never solve the problems that really count in your life. No government will ever solve problems like sin and evil and prejudice and hatred and death. No government can solve those problems. There is actually only one leader who can solve any of that, and that's Jesus. He is our only hope for solving the problems that really ail the human race. And so in the midst of this election, as all these emotions and passions are getting stirred up in people, I beg of you, please do not go go so distracted by politics that you forget to talk about the one and only hope for this nation, which is the gospel. It's the gospel. The good news that King Jesus, the Lord of the universe, became human and died for our sins and rose from the dead so that all people, regardless of party affiliation, could have eternal life and forgiveness as a free gift. That is the only hope for our nation. 
And so let us make sure that we are saying more about Jesus than we're saying about anything else. When, you, when people look at you and they think, what is that guy about? What is that girl about? I hope that they don't say, well, he or she is about democracy or republicanism or limited government or whatever it is. I hope that what they'll say is that man, that woman is about Jesus. That's what they talk about all the time. That's what they make a lot to do about I would encourage you with the words of Erwin Lutzer. He is uh, the pastor, senior pastor of uh, Moody Church in Chicago. He said it well. We have to be clear about what government can and cannot do. Of course we should work toward good government, good laws, and good judges, but we cannot be naive and thinking that government can rescue us from the abyss of moral and spiritual failure. When will we learn that the best news this nation needs will not come from Washington? but from the lips and lives of followers of Jesus Christ. That is the hope for America. And that is actually the reason why our church, just to to let you, some of you may have been wondering, who's Blake going to say we should vote for? I'm not going to tell you. Our church for decades has had a policy that we will not endorse any candidate or party at all. And here's the, I'll just read you the statement from the elders. It was written decades ago. It is the policy of Grace Bible Church that neither its services, publications, nor facilities be used for partisan political purposes. This does not mean that we think Christians should be politically neutral or not be individually active in politics. Our position is a matter of priority. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Our primary responsibility to the world is to be faithful witnesses for Christ. If someone is is offended by us, let it be the offense of the cross. So when people see passion in us, let it be passion for Jesus, for his death, for the gospel, not passion for a candidate or a political party. They can't solve anything. Care about what really matters. So what I want to challenge you to do, Southwood, I want to challenge each and every one of you to take advantage of the spirit of frustration and despair that is running rampant in our nation this week. This is our moment to tell people that, yeah, the government, it cannot solve your problems. Yeah, there's no great candidates to vote for. Yes, that's exactly right, because none of them can fix the problems that really ail you. There is only one hope for your life, and that's Jesus. He alone can fix your problems. And so let's go out into the world and in the midst of their despair, let's share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. My prayer for this election cycle, my brother and I are praying this together, is that God would use this moment in our nation's life to finally crush the idol of Americanism that for some reason has convinced people that they can find security and satisfaction in our nation as if it's somehow different than all other nations. No, no. There's only one place to find the satisfaction and security you crave, and that's in Jesus. And so let's go out there and let's use this moment to tell people about the one and only hope we have. And so just ask yourself, spend a moment thinking about your life, your coworkers, the people you go to school with. Do they know more about which political party you put your faith in or about your savior who you put your faith in? 
Do they know more about your frustrations with this life or your hope for the next life? I hope that it's the latter. I hope they know more about your commitment to Jesus and your hope for eternity. If not, then it's time to make a change. It's time to focus your life not on winning the White House for the next few four years because that's way too small. It's time to focus on winning the souls of men and women for eternity. That's what God wants. So make it your ambition to be speaking much about King Jesus this election cycle, not about candidates or parties or policies. You live in a nation that is on edge at the moment. There is so much anger and frustration and despair. Speak into that. The good news of hope you have in Jesus. This world is groping around in the darkness, so be the light. Show what it looks like to cling to Jesus when everything is going nuts around you. People will be attracted to the joy and the peace and the hope you found in Jesus. This is your moment to be a light to the nation for Jesus Christ. So let's pray that God would use us to reach this country, not for a candidate, not for a party, but for the king. God, we praise you that you are on your throne and that no election will ever change that. We praise you that because you are on the throne, we need not fear, we need not worry, we need not panic, we need not fight. God, we praise you that because you are on the throne, you will win no matter who wins this election. We praise you that you are the king. We pray that you would help us to trust you completely. Help us to believe it when you say in Romans 8 that you are working all things for good for those who love you, including this election. Help us to believe the Bible when it says that you have all power, all knowledge, all wisdom, and you can already see the future completely. Help us to trust ourselves to you. And then through trusting you, I pray, God, that you would work in our lives. I pray that your spirit would mold us and change us and make us into people who are a light to this world. I pray that when the people of this world look at us as followers of Jesus, that they would not see fear, they would not see anger, they would not see worry, that instead they would see hope and peace and love and confidence and that they would be drawn to that. We pray that they would be drawn to Jesus because we know that's the battle that really matters. We pray that you might use this election cycle to win the hearts and souls of millions of men and women in this world for Jesus Christ. We pray that your kingdom, the church, would grow, that you would make this place, this family great. Thank you for the gift of your son who has given us hope and peace that rises above all of the anger and frustration of this world. We praise you for our hope in your son, your king, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good week.